Speaking of which, that is uh, fishing for things, uh, Carolyn and I were fishing on the South Fork of the Boise yesterday, and uh, it was one of those near-perfect fall days. The sky was uh, deep, deep blue, uh, very few clouds in the sky. There was a little bit of nip in the air. The, uh, the leaves are all turning, the quakies and willows and buckbrush are it's filled the mountainsides with color. It's just an absolutely beautiful day, and we were catching fish, which made it perfect. <laughs> and Karen uh, uh, was standing in the tail of a, of a pool about waist deep, and uh, there was a little drop-off right in front of her. She was on the edge of a sandbar, and I warned her a couple of times about getting too close. I was afraid she'd slide right into the hole. So I was about 100 feet uh, downstream fishing when I heard this ear piercing shriek and I thought for sure she had fallen in and when I looked she was standing hugging her her fly rod with her eyes closed like this and I said what is the matter she said snake I said snake she said yes a snake swam right by me right under my feet didn't you see him I said, oh, there aren't any snakes in the water. It was probably a stick or uh, something floating downstream. She said, no, it was a snake. I hate snakes. <laughs> so uh, she went back to fishing. And about five minutes later, there was another scream. And I looked at her, and she was doing the same thing. Her eyes were closed, and she said, another snake coming upstream. So I knew I couldn't get by with the stick uh, answer. <laughs> and uh, that was it for her. She, uh, she waded out uh, across the stream, got out her little folding rocking chair and her books, and she read the rest of the afternoon. The snake absolutely ruined her day. And it occurred to me as I was thinking about that event driving home that uh, that happens to us almost daily. Things are going so well. We have these almost nearly perfect day, and the snake comes by. And uh, he tempts us in, uh, with some, some sin, some fierce temptation that's very difficult to ignore. Or he calls to mind some habit which we're inclined to fall into. Or he reminds us of some terrible, dastardly, heinous thing that we've done in the past. And we begin to feel guilty, and he ruins our day. We don't want to go fishing anymore. Well, I want you to understand that someone has done something about the snake. He is no longer a threat to us. And that's our Lord Jesus. The story is told in John 12. Will you turn with me to that passage? John 12. We've come almost to the end of Jesus' public ministry, at least as far as John's gospel is concerned. The other gospel writers give us more details, but John is bringing his book to a close, though he's only halfway through the book. The chapters that follow are the so-called upper room discourse, which is Jesus teaching his disciples, the inner circle. And then the, the final chapters from 18 on through the end of the book are the story of, of, the, of his passion and the resurrection. So in terms of public ministry, his teaching ministry, 
This is John's uh, uh, final look at that phase of our Lord's life. And uh, last week, we talked about the fact that the Greeks came. And uh, Jesus then knew that his hour had come. The hour for which he had come had arrived. He had come to die for the world. And these Greeks represented the farthest reaches of the Gentile world, the people for whom he had come to die. And uh, in verse 27, we read that he, he said to the two disciples, Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was uh, for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Our Lord saw what lay ahead, the terrible uh, agony of the cross, the events of the, of the trial, the beatings, the scourgings, the separation from the Father, the, the horror of, of hell itself, the great cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He saw all of that, and he hesitated. He shrank from it. Nobody wants to die, and particularly the kind of death that our Lord died. And so he was tempted to pray, Lord, save me from this hour. But uh, he corrected himself. No, no, he said, this is why I came. Glorify your name. In other words, gain renown. Yourself, may you be better known through this uh, through this event. Uh, this passage has come to mean much to me. I'm not going to talk much about this section of John because the the argument moves in another direction from this point on. But I, I simply want to say that this verse comes to mind over and over again when I'm faced with some hard thing that I really do not want to do, or when I'm upset because some temptation has come my way, or uh, there's some major failure. In my life, I want to be saved from this hour. I, I don't want to have to go through it. I shrink from it. I don't want to die. But uh, we have to remind ourselves that what is important is that the Father be glorified, that His name become known, renowned. And we may have to go through some very hard things for this to happen. And our Lord did. He had to die. He didn't want to die. But He realized that it was only through His death that salvation could come to the world. It was only through his death that the Father could be glorified. And so he prays, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it uh, again. For the third time in Jesus' life, the Father responds from heaven. This is one prayer that he'll always answer. Father, glorify thy name. He may not save us from the hour of testing and trial and difficulty and suffering. He may not save us from a hard marriage. He may not save us from difficulty with our children. He may not save our businesses from collapsing. We may have to face into that hour. But there's one prayer that he'll always answer, and that's this one. Glorify your name. And uh, that's what Jesus said uh, to the Son. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it. The crowd that was there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. They didn't really hear but uh, Jesus says, the voice was not for my benefit, but for yours. Now he goes on to explain why he must die. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Now is the time 
for judgment on this world. That is, now the prince of this world will be driven out. Now, what Jesus is saying is this. There's something fundamentally wrong with our world. The the earth has gone awry. There's something radically wrong with society. And it has to be set uh, set right. Now, he says, has judgment come. It's time to set right this this world that, that we live in. Now, there is something wrong with the world. We all know that. You, you don't have to be alive very long to discover that there's something terribly wrong with our world. Things do not go the way we think they ought to go. We all like the picture of the little white house with the picket fence around it and the roses uh, growing, or we like the idea of a log cabin to which we can, we can retreat from the world, but, but we can't get away from it. Everywhere we go, we find that there's something wrong with the world. There was a man that lived uh, in the early centuries of the church named Simon Stylites that, that sat on a pole for something like 12 to 13 years, a uh, flagpole with a little roost on top, and he sat up on top of it trying to get away from the world. But it didn't work. It didn't work. He was tormented by visions of the world while he was there. There's no way to get away from it. And when we're in it, we realize that there's something radically wrong. Now, what's wrong is that this world is in the grip of a malicious murderer, a terrible tyrant. We think the problem is people like Adolf Hitler or Idi Amin or or Omar Gaddafi, uh, those sorts of people, uh, Abu Nadal. But uh, that's not the problem. They are victims of the enemy. Jesus says that this world is in the grip of the evil one. This world is not our father's home, despite what uh, world, despite uh, what we sing. Right now, Satan has this world in his pocket, or as John puts it, the whole, whole world lies in the lap of the wicked one, the evil one. Satan is the prince of this world, and that's the problem. That's why politicians can't do anything about our world, despite their promises, and that's why we can't change things very much. Because the problem is not the people around us. The people around us are mere victims. They've been victimized. The real enemy is behind the scenes, a terrible, malicious, murderous tyrant who rules the world with an iron iron hand. And that's the problem. Unless he is cast out, unless he is dealt with, nothing substantial is going to happen to our earth, despite all the promises that that are made. Uh, For me, I think the closest analogy is that of a puppet show. Now, suppose you and I went to uh, went down here to the fairgrounds uh, in September to the uh, to the uh, uh, what do they call that thing? State fair. Yeah, state fair, and uh, they have a puppet show, and uh, uh, the villain comes out, and he he captures Sweet Penelope, and he ties her to the railroad track, and and he and he seems to be winning and. And I get all excited, and I grab a baseball bat, and I run up on the stage, and I start wailing on the, on the puppet, and I smash the puppet. Well, they'd probably carry me off for, in the first place in, uh, in a straitjacket, but then the puppeteer would just reach underneath the counter, and he'd get another puppet out, exactly like the first, and he would go on with his, uh, with his heinous activities. Now, that's the problem. You see, the, the people that we see on the stage are just puppets. The, the real enemy is behind the scenes. And as Jesus put it in Luke 11, 
this world's in the grip of a strong man. And unless someone stronger comes, there's no way to take away his good. Someone stronger has to defeat the strong man. You and I can't do it. Someone else has to come. And that's why Jesus had to die. You see, the, the, the issue that keeps us in the grip of the evil one is sin. We are guilty. We have sinned against God. And we stand guilty before him. And therefore, Satan can accuse us. And he has freedom to do with us as he pleases. Because we, we've given way to sin. We're guilty. He can say, look at Roper. Look what he did. He has no right to stand before you. He, he's, a, he's a sinful, desperately sinful man. And God would have to say, you're right. You're right. He is. He's separated from me. And, and Satan has us, you see. So something has to be done about the issue of sin. And that's why Jesus came. He came to die for sin. So that we could be set free from the grip of the evil one. Now I want to have you look at another version of this, of this same uh, activity. It's in Revelation 12. Would you turn there with me, please? Revelation 12. Now, I know that Revelation is a spooky book. People get nervous when you say, turn to the book of Revelation. They think this book cannot be understood. No one understands this book. Well, let me tell you, the, the apostles did not write books so that we would be confused. Revelation is a very simple book to understand. It is a picture book. That's what most people don't realize. Pictures are always worth a thousand words. And you get a good picture, and it says far more than you can say in, in a piece of text. Uh, Revelation is a lot like the picture books that we read to children, which are designed to teach things to them. My granddaughter comes over to our house, and... Uh, we keep her books up in the closet, and she goes to the closet, and she points up there, and she says, Emily book, and I know exactly what she wants. So I get her Emily book, and I sit down in my chair, and she sits in my lap, and I read the Emily book to her. Well, it's just a bunch of pictures with a little bit of text. Emily is brushing her teeth. Emily puts on her clothes. Emily picks up her toys, and she looks at the pictures, and I don't even have to say the text anymore. She says it to me. She can't read. But the pictures come through to her. It teaches her, you know, good behavior by pictures. Now, that's exactly what the book of Revelation is. And people get all hung up on the pictures and don't understand that the pictures are designed to teach us truth. Now, let's look at chapter 12. Now, remember, John, the John who wrote, John 12, is the John who saw what he sees in chapter 12. He's giving us another version of the same thing that he reports from Jesus' lips in John 12, beginning with verse 1 of chapter 12. You all have it? Revelation 12, it's an easy book to find, last book in the Bible. All right. A great and wondrous sign appeared in the sky. Actually, we know it's in the sky because in a moment he's going to talk about stars in the sky, so he's not talking about the heaven beyond the stars, spiritual heaven. He's talking about the sky, the stellar heavens. A great and wondrous sign appeared in the sky. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. 
The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. He gave birth, she gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for a thousand two hundred and sixty days. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. And you say, what on earth is going on? Well, let, let me try to explain. The woman is Israel. There's no question about that. All the symbols uh, which accompany her, the sun and the moon under her feet and the crown of 12 stars on, on her head go back to Jacob's, uh, 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 Joseph's dream and, and uh, they're descriptive of Israel. That's all. The woman is Israel. And she's about to give birth to a child. She's pregnant, as John says. The child is Jesus. There's no question about that. The child is Messiah. That's what Israel, uh, uh, that's, that was her fundamental purpose in, in history was to give birth to the child. Uh, and at the same time, there is a red dragon who's described. The dragon is the devil. There's no question about that. He's described uh, as a red dragon because he's murderous. And as a dragon, because though dragons are mythical creatures, John knew that, he didn't really believe in dragons. But all through history and in literature, dragons are used as a, a symbol of, of something that's hostile toward the human race. Dragons hate people. They try to devour them. They fly around incinerating cities and people, and, and they are a picture in all of literature of, of some evil, malicious, hateful uh, beast that's hostile toward the human race. Well, that's Satan. Jesus said he's a liar and a murderer. He, he deceives people and his ultimate end is to destroy human life and to destroy the value of human life and to disrupt human history. That's been his purpose from the very beginning. And he saw at the very outset what God was up to. God planned to give birth through Israel to the son who would set things right. You see that? That was promised Eve. Satan deceived Eve. She, she uh, uh, passed the word on to Adam, and Adam, though he knew better, took the bait and he fell. And the whole human race fell. And God said, well, we're going to have to set things right. Someday the seed, you're going to give birth to the seed that will crush the head of the serpent. The serpent was listening. He heard that. He saw he had to destroy the seed. And that's the story of the Old Testament. Satan's attempts to try to destroy the seed. He waited in front of the woman for that moment of birth. He knew that that, that son was going to come through David's line. He knew that. And so he kept his eye on David's line. Interesting story in the book of Second Kings about a woman named Athaliah, who was the daughter of the infamous Jezebel and Ahab. And Athaliah's son, who was heir to the throne uh, at that time, died. And so she, uh, she went after David's seed. She killed 69 of the 70 descendants of David. Only 70 descendants were left. She killed 69 of them. Little Joash was spared. The seed was spared to go on. 
Who, who instigated that attempt to destroy the sea? The dragon. It wasn't Athaliah. It was the dragon. A little bit later, the Syrians surround the city of Jerusalem. Ahaz was the king at the time. Isaiah was the prophet who tells the story. And, and the Syrians say, we're going to take Ahaz off the throne. He was one of David's descendants. And we're going to put the son of Tabeel, it's a Hebrew uh, idiom for a nobody. Just put a nobody on the throne. Replace him. We're going to do away with the seed of David entirely. Isaiah says, don't you believe it? Don't you believe it, he says. A virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. That's, that's the famous prophecy in Isaiah 9. Don't you believe it? God's plan will not be thwarted. See what John is saying? You see what he's seeing in Revelation? He sees anti-Semitism through the, through the ages. You want to know why Jews are hated? You want to know why Mr. Butler up in Hayden Lake hates the Jews? You want to know why Adolf Hitler hated them? They're not the enemy. They are tools of the enemy, victims of Satan. That's where anti-Semitism comes from. That's why it's so deeply entrenched. It's because it comes from the dragon who's stirring people up against Israel. It's happened historically. And as this passage goes on, we don't have time to talk about it, but the passage goes on to say that, that Israel continues to be persecuted, driven into the wilderness, which is a place of divine provision. For Israel, that's always where God rained manna and water out of the rocks and provided for his people. And Israel's driven off into the wilderness, and God's going to take care of his people. They're not going to be lost. They're going to lose out in the end. He still has a plan for them, you see. But that's why there's so much hatred of Jews in the world today. And that's why we must never be a part of it. Because when we are, we've fallen into the lie of the enemy. We've become his dupes. See? But you notice what happens? In, in chapter 12 again, she gave birth. The, the son escaped. Herod tried to kill all the children in Bethlehem. But the son escaped. Went down into into Egypt. And the male child was born who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. In other words, Satan was foiled by the successful completion of Jesus' ministry. He was born. He lived. He ministered. He served. He died. He was raised from the dead. He ascended into heaven to the place of victory. He declared his conquest of principalities and powers, as Paul puts it and as Peter puts it. He went to hell itself for us so he could proclaim a victory over the inhabitants of hell. And Satan was defeated. He was cast out. That's what this war is all about in verses 7 and following. I'm convinced it's not, gonna, it's not something that happens at some future point. Jesus is... John's looking at the cross. That's what he sees. That's when Satan was cast out. He's no longer the accuser of the brethren. You see, uh, our Lord's most tragic hour was his finest hour. It was, the, it was the hour of his greatest triumph. The demons thought they had Jesus on the ropes when he hung on the cross. Hey, this is it, they thought. We finally destroyed the son who is to be born. We won, and the demons died. And then Jesus rose from the dead, and he came out of that tomb, a conquering hero. I read a number of years ago a, a story of, uh, that, of something that happened during the Napoleonic era. Napoleon was fighting the Prussian general, uh, Blucher. 
uh, in Brienne, France, and uh, uh, most of, of Napoleon's army was across the Seine, on the north side of the Seine. And the rest of the army, a small contingent, was fighting on the other side with, with uh, Napoleon and some of his officers. And they were waiting for word of the battle. And finally, uh, smoke signals went up, reporting the result of the battle. And they read, Napoleon defeated. And then mess came across the river and, and obscured the rest of the message. And, and they thought they had lost. And they began to scatter and, and return home. And then the mist blew away and they saw the rest of the message. Napoleon defeated the enemy. And they knew they had won. Now that's exactly what happened at the cross. The demons thought they had finally done it. They had won. And even the disciples thought that they had won. Remember, they went away discouraged. Peter said, ah, let's go back to fishing. Our whole mission has been aborted. Everything that Jesus came to do has been brought to an end. And then they took him off of that cross and they put him in that grave. And he broke out of that tomb on Easter morning. He ascended to the right hand of God. He won. He defeated principalities and powers. And then, as John puts it, back in chapter 12, I, if I am lifted up, will draw all men to myself. Now, he doesn't mean all universally. He means all kinds. All kinds. Red, yellow, black, white, educated, uneducated, Pious, prostitutes, young, old, everyone. Do you realize that's what happened here at the cross? That's why Jesus said, remember his death until he comes. You see, now when Satan points his finger at us and accuses us, we have an answer. Let me read on in Revelation. Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ for the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. Satan says to me and to God, did you see what Roper did? Did you see that thought that passed through his mind and that he nurtured? Did you see that? And the father says, I know. I know. I see it. That's, what, that's why Jesus came. He died for that thought. We look back at some terrible thing that we've done and, and we begin to feel guilty and, and Satan begins to accuse us. And we say, no, no. The cross has paid for that crime, that sin, that thing, whatever it was in my past that, that blights my, my memories. He's paid for it. That's what it means to overcome by the blood of the Lamb. You remind yourself of the cross. And by the word of their testimony, the fact that we have confessed Him, we've been drawn to Him, we've become part of His body, and they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. We've been, we've been delivered from death as well. Satan uses death to tyrannize his victims, but we've been delivered. Therefore, rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. That's us. We're the ones who dwell in heaven. 
We're seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, but woe to the earth and sea, because the devil has gone down to you. There are two classes of people in the book of Revelation. There are those that dwell in heaven, and that's those who have acknowledged Jesus Christ as Lord and who who are part of his kingdom. And though we live here on the earth, we actually dwell in heaven. It's a symbol. We're seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. But there are others, he describes, who dwell on the earth. That's the limit of their horizon. That's as far as they go. They don't have any spiritual perspective. They live here on this earth. And he says, woe to those, because they don't have any answer to the evil one. They can't deal with guilt and fear and depression. They don't know what to do about their limitations. They They just let the snake go on ruining their day. But we don't have to. We don't have to. When Satan strikes us with with fear or with doubt or when depression assails us or guilt overwhelms us, we overcome by the word of the cross. As he won, he defeated principalities and powers. And that's what we celebrate this morning. That death that sets us free. I want to ask the men to come forward now. And we want to gather around this table. And as we do, I would like to have you turn back to John 12. And I'd like to read on into this this passage that we've been studying. Verse 35. You men, if you'd like me, come on down and take your places here on the front. Verse 35. Jesus told them, You're going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in the dark does not know where he's going. Put your trust in the light while you have it, so that you may become sons of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Gentlemen can sit down. Thank you. This is in response to the question which the crowd raises to Jesus. They say to him, but uh, the Old Testament says that the Son of Man is to live forever. He's an eternal king. He's the eternal father, as Isaiah puts it. His line, the messianic line, according to Psalm 89, will endure forever. What, what, What do you mean he's going to be lifted up? They understood that he was referring to his death. Jesus bypasses that question because he realized that that was really not the issue. Intellectual questions are rarely, if ever, the issue. The issue is always the heart. And he realized that they loved darkness rather than the light. That's always why we reject the cross. It's not that we don't understand. There are these moments of insight that come to all of us. When we hear the gospel preached or we read the scriptures and there's a flash of understanding and it becomes crystal clear to us that Jesus is the one that we've been looking for and that he's the answer to the world's world's needs. And what Jesus is saying is when that light dawns, respond to it. Because if we don't, the light may be withdrawn. This happened in a very uh, uh, poignant way, really, historically, because John goes on to tell us that Jesus went away and hid himself from them. They, They didn't have the Lord in their presence any longer until the cross. And in verse 37, John tells us, commenting on 
Jesus' uh, word about the darkness overtaking people. Even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. The light had dawned on them. They had seen clearly who Jesus was, and they turned their back on the light and went off into the darkness. And he says, this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Lord, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord describes, uh, is descriptive of his power. And we still do that today. If we want to show a, a, the power of a man, we show him flexing his arm. The arm of the Lord was revealed to Israel. His strength and power revealed in, in the Lord Jesus. But they didn't believe it, as Isaiah said. For this reason, they could not believe. Because, as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts, so they can neither see with their ears, nor understand with their hearts, nor turn that I may heal them. Now, he is not saying that Israel never had a chance, that from the very beginning God had hardened their hearts. What he is saying is that they would not believe, and in time they could not believe. You see, there, there does come a time when the light is withdrawn. We see clearly what is involved, and we refuse to respond to the light. In which case, after a time, and I don't know where that line is, God withdraws the light. I talked to an old gentleman once out in the desert, rancher who'd lived out there for 80 years or more, and, and uh, asked him if he had any interest in spiritual things. And he said to me, he said, I... I've done without God for 80 years of my life. Why do I need him now? And there is a hard, hard heart, you see. That can happen. It can happen. That's why I plead with you, as John does, and as our Lord did, to open your heart to the Lord Jesus. If you see clearly that he's the one, open your heart. On the other side, there are those who believe. Verse 44. Then Jesus cried out, When a man believes in me, he does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. When he looks at me, he sees the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light, so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. Three results of belief. When we believe in him, we believe in the Father. In other words, the way to know God is to know the Son. That's what he's saying. If you've put your trust in me, then you've put your trust in God. People... Ask me from time to time, how do I know God? And I can tell them. You come to know Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. When you come to Jesus, you've come to God. Secondly, Jesus says, when you see me, you've seen the Father. If you make a study of Jesus, then you become a, a theologian, a profound theologian. You know more than your teachers know, as Psalm puts it, as one of the Psalms puts it. I remember reading years ago uh, the preface to a work by a German theologian, very well-known, scholarly, uh, Old Testament theologian, who is not a Christian. He says in the, in the preface to his book, I have never had a so-called conversion to Christ. And I remember uh, reading that while I was in school and thinking, then this man has nothing to teach me about God. He doesn't know God. But if you've seen Jesus, you've seen God. And thirdly, he says, I have come into the world as light, so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. When you come to Jesus, you have light. 
You have wisdom. You're able to make these subtle moral distinctions, decisions upon which so much uh, depend. You can, you can know that certain things are right and certain things are wrong because God has told us. Now, that's the option. We can either believe and have the benefits of belief or we can refuse to believe. And when we refuse to believe, God in time may take away the darkness from us or take away the light from us. And in conclusion, Jesus says this is very, very serious. As for the person who hears my word and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save it. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. That very word which I spoke will condemn him at the last day. For I did not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. And I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. In other words, we have to take his word seriously because this is God's word. I want to close by reading uh, an excerpt from C.S. Lewis's fourth Narnian book. He tells the story of a little girl named Jill who found herself in a strange land, stranded uh, alone in, in a wood because of her own pride and, and foolishness. She was lost and lonely and very, very thirsty, and she came to a stream bubbling uh, out of the rock and Lying across her path was a great lion. It was a picture of the Lord Jesus in the, in the Narnian tales, Narnia tales. And uh, the lion told her that if she was thirsty, she could come and drink. May I, could I, uh, would you mind going away while I do, asked Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at his motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys. Women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh, dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then, said the lion. There is no other stream. He's the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by Him. Lord, thank You for offering up Yourself for us. For our miserable lives, You gave up Your glorious existence in heaven, Your equality with God. You laid aside the use of Your attributes. You came to earth to die for us. Thank You, Lord Jesus. Amen.